I love that one verse where um, people were shouting hosannas and people told them to be quiet. And Jesus said, if they're quiet, even the rocks, the stones will will cry out. I think that's where Jesus said rock music was okay, (laughs) particularly by the stones. (laughs) Well, today is Palm Sunday, if you haven't figured it out already. And no doubt most of you know that story that Cheryl read pretty well. Uh, Jesus leaves Bethany for a place called Bethphage and the Mount of Olives. He's riding on a donkey and hundreds of people come running to join him. And soon the crowd uh, grows as people uh, kind of drop what they're doing and decide to join in this parade up the Mount of Olives. Now, if we go to John's gospel, in fact, we had to jump back and forth between Matthew, Mark, Luke and John this morning to get the whole picture of Palm Sunday. But in John's gospel, it's clear that there's already another huge crowd in Jerusalem and they hear the approaching noise and the shouting of all of the hosannas and they leave and they meet uh, as he approaches the Mount of Olives. Now you need to understand as you cross the Mount of Olives, you get to the top, is the first time you get this beautiful panoramic view of Jerusalem. And so you've got uh, two groups of uh, thousands of people, we have no idea how many, uh, that... uh, were shouting and singing and they were laughing and dancing and chanting and, of course, they're waving their palm branches. So it was a day of what I call unbridled joy as common people welcomed Jesus to Jerusalem. But suddenly something really strange happens. And Luke is the only one who tells us what happens. It says at the height of this celebration... Jesus begins to weep. Now, the word, I love this, the Greek word for weep is kleo. And and it doesn't just mean, but kleo actually is a loud expression of pain or sorrow. And so Jesus wasn't just kind of, you know, a few tears running down his face. He's probably wailing almost over what he was seeing. That must have been pretty strange. I can imagine some small kids there that day that turned to mommy and daddy and says, why is the man on the donkey crying? And I have a feeling that most moms and dads turned and looked and said, uh, I don't know. <laughs> I'm not quite sure. But if we deep, dig deeper into scripture, we're going to find out exactly why he was crying. He was weeping, not for himself, but he was weeping for the city, Jerusalem, that was just about ready to reject him. He saw them cheering these hosannas, waving these palm branches. Uh, But in a few days, they wouldn't be shouting hosanna anymore. They'd be shouting crucify him, crucify him. See, on Palm Sunday, Good Friday was only five days away. And in the midst of this joy, Jesus saw the future. He knew Good Friday was on the way. There's no doubt about it. He knew the nation was going to turn against him. He saw the day, even in the future, in 70 A.D., about another 35 years, when the Romans were going to come marching into Jerusalem and they would tear it down, every bit of it, and kill hundreds of thousands of people who lived in Jerusalem and around that area. Now, all of this happened. Why? Because God's Son had come and they didn't recognize Him. They didn't get it. God's Son came and they... Well, they crucified him. See, Jesus knew the crowds were fickle. 
I wonder how many pastors ever stood in the pulpit on a special day like Palm Sunday, Good Friday, Easter Sunday, Christmas Eve, whatever, and thought, these people are a bunch of fickle followers. You know, they just show up uh, for the free food following, uh, special worship leaders, you know, but they're fickle at heart. Well, Jesus knew these people were fickle. There's no doubt about it. He knew their leaders were plotting against them. I got two of my leaders sitting in the back row. I don't think they're doing any plotting. But, you know, that's, these people there just stand in the back and they're just trying to figure out exactly. I should include you too, Anthony. Uh, trying to figure out how to overthrow the king. See, he knew the cheers would suddenly become jeers. Uh, he knew that on Sunday, he knew on Sunday what was going to happen on Friday. He knew the cross was directly in front of him. See, he knew all of this, and still he marched resolutely into Jerusalem. King Jesus, riding on a donkey, heading into the city where he knew he had an appointment in that town of Jerusalem. Now, in days to come, uh, people would look back and say, gosh, Jesus, if we'd only known, if we'd only known what you're doing. But after Palm Sunday, nobody could use that excuse anymore. No one could say, he didn't make himself plain enough for us. I mean, after all, I mean, how could Jesus have made the whole deal any plainer than he already had made it? I mean, on Palm Sunday, everybody had a choice to make. And I'm going to suggest to you that everybody who's here today at Palm Sunday at Restore has a choice to make. We're going to get to what that choice is all about. See, Jesus called for a decision and the nation rendered its verdict. Christ had come into their city. What are we going to do with it? Well, we know there was confusion in the city. The king had come, but what will the people do? Well, the answers aren't really hard to find. The disciples, we know, praised Jesus openly. They were, Hosanna, here's the, here's the king. We got a bunch of kids that just run around because they got a palm branch in their hand, and it was really cool to run around and see a guy ride a donkey and shout Hosanna. You know, hallelujah. The crowds were there cheering, uh, but they didn't know what this whole thing was about. And the city, of course, of Jerusalem was like, what the heck is going on? What is coming over the Mount of Olives? They were curious, but they weren't what you might call committed to what was happening that day. So that leaves only one group, though. It's called the religious leaders. The religious leaders. Now, the religious leaders, you would have thought, well, Jesus is coming just like the Old Testament said. Let's get out there and meet this guy. Well, the scribes, the Pharisees, the religious heat, the elders of Israel, uh, the rulers of the Sanhedrin. Uh, how do they respond? I mean, the people have spoken, but will their religious rulers follow suit? Well, three words kind of sum up the official response. You can imagine if Jesus came marching into Hollister or Branson today, a lot of people would be dancing around, waving all kinds of stuff. But what would the local church people be saying? Three words came to mind to me. One of them is fright, because they didn't know what Jesus was up to. Uh, Another word might be frustration, uh, because all these people are cheering for this guy. We don't understand it. Or another one, anger, because they now see him as an enemy of everything that their little church stood for. And here, Matthew, if you go back to Matthew's gospel, he adds a rather interesting little point. As Jesus approached Jerusalem, it says, he he says the whole city was stirred, was stirred. 
That Greek word is sail. And that means shaken to the core. It was almost like a little earthquake. The whole place was just trembling because they were shaken by all of this. And people began to say, who is this guy? Who is this guy? And there was an answer that came back immediately. Some people said, well, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. Is that who it was? Well, you think about that for a moment. It was true as far as it goes. Every detail is kind of correct, but it doesn't go far enough. Uh, He is a prophet, but he's a whole lot more than a prophet. Uh, He is from Galilee, but that's not his ultimate hometown, which is up there somewhere in heaven. The people of Jerusalem had asked the right questions that day, and they gave an almost right answer. Almost right. But in spiritual things, friends, guess what? Almost right is not enough. Now, Mark ends his whole story of this triumphant entry into, into Jerusalem by telling us that after Jesus got into town, he decided to make a last trip to the temple. But because it was so late in the day when he got there, guess what? No one was there. And so what did he do? Gathers up his disciples, heads back across the Mount of Olives, up the little town of Bethany where he spent the night with Well, who? Mary and Martha and probably their brother, Lazarus, who he'd raised from the dead. Kind of a strange way to end a rather momentous day. I mean, you might ask the question, what what did that trip into town, what did it accomplish? Well, if you want a short answer, uh, if you ask me, what what did that all mean? I just say, well, Jesus was sending a message to Israel on Palm Sunday And the message was, the time for decision has come. I might even say, you might say, why are we here today waving sticks in the air? Well, because it's time for a decision. It's time for us all to decide. See, no longer are the people going to be given a chance to discuss Jesus uh, in an abstract manner. On this day, Jesus presented himself to the entire nation asking for an immediate decision, and the answer to decision time was not very encouraging. I've actually been in a church where they asked people to walk the aisle and no one came. And then the pastor you know, very quickly, well, we know in your heart you're walking. <laughs> I thought, eh, I don't know about that. <laughs> Can he, pastor, see in my heart? I'm not so sure. See, the crowds cheered, but they didn't understand him. They enjoyed the worship music today, but they didn't really understand Jesus. The pastor had a great sermon. We don't remember what he talked about. Israel came close to accepting Jesus. But close enough is not enough. So after Palm Sunday, the only thing left was not the Mount of Olives. It was Golgotha. Centuries have come and gone since Jesus had an appointment in Jerusalem. So what can we learn from this? I'm going to give you three lessons to start with. Here's lesson number one. You see it on the screen. Uh, Spiritual opportunities don't last forever. You know, now is the day of your salvation, for example. Where Jesus is involved, nobody can sit and straddle the fence forever. I mean, sooner or later you go, we'll do what? Fish or cut bait? A decision needs to be rendered one way or another. Do you really believe in Jesus as the Son of God, or are you just kind of going, well, I don't know, I'm really, maybe next week. See, in spiritual matters, to not decide is to what? It's to decide. 
to say not now is no. That's pretty simple. See, it's not enough just to be interested in Jesus. I mean, a lot of people are interested in Jesus. There's, there's no doubt about that. I mean, millions of people are really interested in Jesus, but they have no living, lasting, or loving relationship with that guy that we call Jesus. See, the people that lived in Jerusalem in the first century, they were interested in Jesus. The whole city, it says, was stirred. It was a big disruption, but not to the point of doing anything about it. See, mere interest is not going to save you. I mean, I know a lot of people that have showed up at churches I've been pastoring because they were kind of interested. They want to see what's going on there. We heard about this church. We just kind of want to scope you out. <laughs> hey, if all you're doing is to come and scope out the pastor, friends, you've missed something. If you don't come to scope out Jesus and how Jesus becomes manifest in that gathering, well, quite honestly, you should have stayed home. That's a, that sounds pretty blunt. Maybe I shouldn't have said it that way, should I? You go. Oh, I got it. Okay, that's okay. See, the gospel saves only people who what? Believe. Not those people who talk about believing. Or will think about believing. Or might just, if I get around it, believing. See, interest is always good if it leads to action. If not, interest will eventually kind of harden and disappear and you'll move on. So it's called spiritual neutrality. Uh, spiritual neutrality is not, a, is, is not a permanent destination. I mean, no one stays there forever. It, it's been written, one either believes in him or is offended by him. That's pretty cut and dry. You either believe in him or he offends you in some way. And so Palm Sunday, that's today, reminds us that each of us, I shouldn't say from the pastor on down, but from the pastor on up. <laughs> this is sooner or later, we need to make up our minds about Jesus, the Messiah. And my prayer today is that everybody here today has already done that. But the reason that some people do not see truth is not that they have not read enough books or that they don't have enough um, academic degrees. It's because they just plain simple don't have the guts to do it. They don't have the courage to do it. And the reason people don't see truth is not that they've not been to church enough. See, if knowledge alone would save the world, guess what? The entire world would be saved by now. But knowledge without courage leads to kind of a, what I would call an intellectual cul-de-sac. You're going up right back where you came from. It takes courage to believe in Jesus. Here's lesson number two. The world that rejected Jesus still rejects him today. True or false? True. True. You see that so many ways. See, the world, even today, 2023, they hate religious emotion. They hate it when Christians stand up and defend their faith. You know, sadly, you know, some children and other people were killed in, at a school last week. It's a horrible tragedy. But we got one group, all they're interested in is their idea. But the minute Christians stand up and pray... We got to we got to get them off the news. We got to get them out of the way. We don't be don't keep bringing Jesus into everything. Well, I, I tell you, the day I can't bring Jesus into everything is the day I quit. That's the day you ought to fire me. That's the day you ought to throw me out on the street. See, to a lot of people today, religion—I don't like that word very much. Religion is an intellectual affair 
But guess what? It never gets down to the heart. They hate it because they don't understand it. Here's a third lesson. The invitation is not to believe, but I say it's to be brave. Brave. I mean, so would you join with the people who crucified him? Or would you be with the people that would be waving your palm branches saying, Hosanna? See, our greatest need is moral courage to make the right choices. Uh, When the time comes to take sides um, with Jesus, all you need is enough courage to say, yeah, Jesus, I'm with you. I'm with you. And don't say, yeah, Jesus, I'm right behind you. Way behind you. (laughs) No, I'm right up here with you, Jesus. See, Palm Sunday, this Palm Sunday invitation is not only to believe, but also to be brave. Now, what does the Bible actually say, though, about following Jesus? If you had the courage to follow Jesus, what does the Bible actually tell you about? Because before you enlist, you ought to know what you're getting yourself into. Well, a lot of times in the Bible, through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we find Jesus' invitation is to follow. And sometimes we see this when he says to 12 disciples, follow me. Sometimes it's an open invitation to everybody who happens to be listening to him as he's sitting in the boat or as he's handing out free food, feeding 5,000 people. Follow me. Now, unsurprisingly, that theme is all over the New Testament. Uh, The early church was constantly reminded, follow him, follow him, follow him. Now, here we are on Palm Sunday, which is the beginning of what a lot of churches call Holy Week. Because a lot of churches this week will not only have Palm Sunday, but they'll have a Monday night Thursday service where they have communion. Then they have a, a service of darkness, a tenebrae service on Good Friday. And then there will be this gigantic Easter celebration. Well, what's at stake with all of that? Well, in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 27, Paul says this, that we are the body of Christ. Now think about that for a moment. If you are truly a Christ follower, you are his hands, you are his feet, you are his mouth, you are his witness, you are his gospeler, you are his helper. We're all part of that body. See, you represent him to all the people who are around you. Just take a moment for a moment. Just think about the responsibility that God puts on you because you said, I will follow him. There are people who, 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 that you don't know that are watching you. People who are restored know that I'm at, at Hollister Coffee Shop every morning that they're open. And since I have a key to the place, I could be there every day if I wanted to be, because I'd be the only one there. There are people who are watching. There are people there who know who I am. Now, if I just said, can I, they came and said, sit, can I sit with you today? Heck no, go find your own place. Don't bug me. Not what I would call an open invitation to perhaps know something a little bit more about Jesus. See, we should be following in Jesus' footsteps how Jesus interacted with people. See, the world desperately needs a church. And I'm not lobbying for this one, but I am lobbying for this one. It needs a church, or like the church you guys go to, or whatever church you guys have attended in the past. You need a church that actually follows Jesus. And not some constitution or some bylaws or uh, some tradition, you know, the, the, what is the seven last words of the church? We've always done it this way before. Instead of the seven first words, we can all do all things through Christ who strengthens us. We get our scriptures backwards. See, Christ followers need to take their name 
seriously. See, the world is hurting. People are hungry. People are oppressed all around us. They're tired. They're lost. They're without hope. And it's our job to do what? To go find them. See, the world desperately needs churches that are following Jesus with their whole lives. Not just, oh, let's come all into this holy little huddle and then you all can go to the, you know, beat the Baptist to the buffet somewhere. See, the problem is sometimes we kind of forget who, we've got this calling. We neglect to follow Jesus. We prioritize our safety. We prioritize our comfort. And boy, if you're on social media at all, guess what? Sometimes we'd rather be doing what? We'd rather be out there condemning this world than gospeling this world. So how do we actually follow Jesus? Now, if I ended my sermon right now, by the way, I'd ended my sermon that way when I first wrote it. I thought, holy mackerel, that's a lousy sermon. <laughs> I just basically chastised a whole group of people for not doing what Jesus told them to do. Well, so I better come up with, <laughs> how do you actually do this? Uh, what does it mean to be his hands and feet? Well, I came up with three questions. And by the way, I just had Anthony put them on the screen early this morning because I, I only caught these three questions early this morning. But we need to ask, where did Jesus go? That's a good question for us if we're supposed to do the work. Where did Jesus go? If we're supposed to be following him, we ought to know where he went. So where did he go? Well, if you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you find that Jesus is most commonly found in one of three places. He's either all by himself, alone, but when he's doing that, he's praying or resting or fasting. He's also with his closest friends, his community of believers, or he's with the oppressed and the forgotten. Now, obviously, that's not an exhaustive list. But Jesus went to plenty of other places. But if you glance through the Gospels, you're going to find out that Jesus, you'll find Jesus is in or heading to one of those three places. Alone, close friends, oppressed, forgotten. Now, that's what following Jesus means. And even if that makes us feel a little bit uncomfortable, because there's a whole lot more engaging to sit around with a bunch of people in a whole little huddle and drink coffee. Sitting with people who don't know Jesus is a little bit more difficult. So I'm going to take you to the second question. The second question is, what did Jesus do when he got there? Well, when Jesus was with people, he gave them what they needed. Which is interesting. He gave them what they needed, not what they wanted. Uh, the day that somebody comes to me and says, Pastor, don't always be telling us what Jesus wants. Could you just kind of back off of that a little bit? <laughs> I said, I can only give you what God gave me. I remember a guy that preached for me one time, John Olson. Nancy knows him. He was a retired farmer who'd done missionary work in India. And I had him preach for me one Sunday. And he came out. I said, John, that was a wonderful message. He said, I only gave you what the Holy Spirit gave me. And I thought, what a wonderful response. Not like, well, yeah, I worked all night on it. No, I got, gave you what the Holy Spirit gave me. Well, that, the second but what did Jesus do? Well, he was with people and gave them what they needed and not what they wanted. See, their life was worth it because Jesus was about to die on the cross for these people. There's a third question we should ask ourselves. Is how did Jesus feel when he interacted with people? And what do you do when you come across somebody who... Maybe he doesn't know Jesus. 
Well, often we're kind of motivated to do the right thing for the wrong reasons. Instead, we need to focus on our heart and our motives as we go about doing this. See, Jesus was motivated by his longing, by his desire, by, you know, just to be with his creation. Jesus just loved being with people. He was generally moved by all the people that he, he, he encountered. Uh, he showed his emotions. He, uh, he empathized with them. And that's one of the things that really attracted people to him. Now, there are, three, there are three emotions that I study scripture that Jesus seems to be showing all the time. The three emotions are compassion, grief, and anger. Kind of an interesting combination. Compassion. Like with that woman at the well. Go find your husband. Oh, I don't have a husband. I know you got several of them. <laughs> Just come on. He showed compassion. I love that. Talk about that before. My favorite Greek word for is compassion. Schwanknitzomai. It means to feel it in your guts. I mean, Jesus could just... <sighs> compassion. The other emotion he showed quite often was grief. Like facing the death of his very best friend, Lazarus. Standing outside that tomb, what did he do? He cried. And I have a feeling that word cry in the Greek doesn't mean... I think he was weeping and wailing. He also was angry over injustices. You don't think Jesus ever got angry? How would you like to have been in the temple the day that Jesus came in and started kicking over all the tables and turning over the chairs and told everybody to get the potluck out of here? Oh, sorry. I'm, I'm crossing the dangerous territory. <laughs> you know, but he was, he was angry. You, this, this is my father's house and you've made it what a den of thieves. Imagine if the church, what's the name of your church? Christian ministry. What if Christian ministry or Restore was known for doing those things that Jesus did? Being people of compassion, people who shared in the grief of other people, and who were angry over injustices in this world. Wow. Imagine the impact it would make if we just embodied those three emotions. The church and his people were just known for following Jesus. What an impact we could make. Well, our call on Palm Sunday and beyond is really to follow Jesus. I mean, if you, somebody says later, what the pastor preached on today, he said, follow Jesus. There you go. Uh, to be his hands and feet in some way. We need to go where he went, do what he did, and to feel what he felt. And when we do that, guess what? We're actually making a choice. And the choice is what? Following Jesus. Let's pray.